recovery comes from AA speakers who have uh, shared their recovery over the years with me. And uh, I definitely have that thing of it's good, it's good enough for the alcoholic, it's sure enough, good enough for me. So um, so we give tokens in my home group, and I encourage newcomers because uh, a lot of us come in in a daze, you know, and we don't really realize we're in um, until several months have passed. You know, so I tell my sponsors, you know, pick a date because, you know, in AA they celebrate every day, every week, every month, every year of recovery, and it's always a victory, and it's always, you know, bless you and in the demonstration of God in their lives that they're sober one more day, one more year. And uh, I don't appreciate the fact that now and on it's often like, oh, you, you have not gotten it yet. Like, you're still here. Uh, and, you know, I finally said to someone, I said, you know, I, I wasn't raised Christian, but I would never go to a practicing Catholic and go, you still do that? <laughs> How weird. So uh, I celebrated my anniversary not when I first came in. I came in in October of um, 1990, 91. But I celebrated my anniversary on um, January 21st of 1992, and this past January it was 21 years, which is over half my lifetime. <laughs> And to be perfectly honest, uh, I was so moved by Jeremy's share this weekend, and he reminded me that I remember coming in and going, a couple things, uh, Santa Fe uh, is a real community of spiritual seekers, and it tends to be a bit faddish. There's, you know, the latest book, the latest spiritual teacher, the latest practice, and they seem to um, recycle every six to nine months. And when I came into Al-Anon, I was... Uh, a little bit spiritually cynical as a result of having grown up in that environment. And I remember sort of daring Al-Anon that if I'm going to do this, if I'm going to come in in 17 and really show up and not just make a meeting when I can, but do it consistently and be accountable uh, to my own group, then it better not run out of things to teach me. You know, I want to continue to grow and deepen my understanding of uh, my relationship with God and understanding of um, just how um, open my heart and spirit can become. And uh, that, I think, is a big reason why I stayed. I've also, uh, it doesn't take me very long to get crazy. I uh, have noticed that when I do get busy, miss my local, my um, weekly home group, you know, it doesn't always result in wanting to die. It doesn't always result in high chaos. But what almost immediately starts to happen is I start to listen to the voice in my head. Uh, I heard it sometimes somebody say, you know, my brain would kill me if it didn't need my body for transportation. <laughs> and I have that mind, you know, and uh, a good friend of mine in Alcoholics Anonymous shared with me, I don't know the word, but he said that in French there's a word for the devil. And the literal translation of it is the accuser. And I call my disease the devil voice because what it accuses me of is that I'll never be enough, that I don't deserve any better than I've had, um, and then it's not safe. And if I'm going to be okay, I need to take care of it myself. And that's the voice that I start to listen to just, you know, one week being too busy to get to my home group. You know, I start to think, oh, well, that's, that's the truth. So I'm going to talk a little bit about what it was like, what happened, what it's like now. And uh, I've come to rely on a 
getting from survival to recovery, I own almost every Alabama book. Um, most of them I've not read cover to cover, including this one. But there is a couple, there are a couple things that speak to me. And this is, I believe, on page 20. What is it like? It's unremitting fear. Fear of rejection, fear of the unknown, fear of being known. A constant nagging fear that never goes away. It's lonely. It's wanting so desperately to be apart, and yet pushing people so far away I couldn't possibly be connected. It's isolating myself, and then being the outsider looking in and never fitting in. I'm often ashamed. I'm afraid to lose the only people who say they love me. I'm afraid they won't come back, and then I'm afraid they will. It's confusing. People say they love me, and then they hurt me. In my gut, I know that something is wrong, but I am told that I overreact or am too sensitive, so I learn not to trust my instincts. It's being needy. It's being convinced that I am unloved and unlovable. It's needing to hear over and over, you're wonderful, yet never believing it. So I always need to hear it again, and it's still not enough. It's feeling that I am not enough. It's having to do for others so that I can earn their love, and yet feeling that what I give is never enough. It's about trust. It's being told that I didn't see what I just saw, and believing other people instead of believing my own eyes. It's never being able to trust anyone, not even myself, because my whole life is based on pretense and denial of reality. And I, even, I don't even know how I feel about it. So uh, I uh, grew up in a family where the alcoholism was not subtle. Uh, my mom, Last year, we went out, um, her sobriety date is in the summer, we went out to celebrate her 20 years clean and sober uh, after a new meeting, and we were having lunch, and I said in front of her the fact that um, sometimes over the years I have felt sorry for my friends where the alcoholism was one generation removed, or where it was high-functioning alcoholism, because they really struggled to identify the problem. And it was pretty obvious in my house on what was going on and that things were not okay. And my mom <laughs> looked offended. And she turned to me and went, I thought we looked pretty good. <laughs> now, in classic alcoholic fashion, ten minutes later, she's telling the story about running down the downtown street in Santa Fe in her nightgown and five inches of snow, carrying a butcher knife, chasing after my brother, saying, you better run, because if I catch you, you're dead. Well, we look good. <laughs> I had to point out to her the fallacy of that little equation. But, um, so, you know, I grew up in a house. I think, um, for example, I, I believe there's a genetic component to alcoholism. I believe it's an allergy. I believe that I am a demonstration of the fact that um, you either have it or you don't because I had every opportunity to become an alcoholic. Um, it was encouraged in my home. It is what my family did. It was a family value. Uh, I'm a heavy kid from Santa Fe, and I had um, a mother who did drugs with her kids whose children 
jobs for her. Um, one of my classic memories, because it just summarizes so much of my upbringing, was I remember being 10 years old and my mom getting high with my brothers, and um, the joint came to me, and I passed it to the next person without taking any. And everyone laughed, and my mom's response was, isn't she adorable? It's a face, she'll grow over it, get out of, you know, she'll grow over it, profess it. So, you know, it was um, available. I, I do a lot, I used to do a lot of outreach in the schools um, with Alcoholics Anonymous and Alan, where we would do panels, you know, in each of like five minutes, try to tell, you know, how we were affected by alcoholism and what our lives were like now. And, you know, I used to listen to my friends in AA and think, you know, I couldn't understand why they couldn't find alcohol before the age of 11 or 15. The first time I was drunk, I was six. Uh, so it just, but it never fixed me. It never made me taller, smarter, more beautiful, more at peace. And that's what I hear from my friends who are in Alcoholics Anonymous, is that it filled some empty part of their soul in the way that nothing else had. And frankly, if it had ever done that for me, I would have pursued it to the extremes that my friends and family did. Uh, I didn't like the loss of control. Uh, I'm the only person I know who went away to college and probably stopped drinking. <laughs> and I used to drink to keep my mom company. Um, But I'll tell you what did make me feel powerful. I had a mom who alternated between telling, saying that if she didn't have a child depending on her, that she would run away and live the life that she truly wanted. And at that time, I was the only one left living at home. And she would go between that and, honey, if it wasn't for you, I would have committed suicide years ago. And... I have really struggled in Al-Anon to understand what my step one is. Uh, it has confused me over the years why we are also powerless over alcohol. Um, I don't find that some of the things that other people in my community substituted with are useful to me. I'm, I don't believe I'm powerless over everything. Uh, we're all powerless over the weather. That isn't what brings me to Al-Anon. I think I'm powerless over something very unique, and years ago a friend of mine described it, and what she said is that an alcoholic's attention really only spends, um, extends about eight inches for themselves, but that every once in a while they look up, and she goes, and when they do, it is like laser beams into my soul, and I went, yeah. You know, and I am somebody who I think I formed that habit at a very young age, um, being there for my mom, giving her um, the pep talk that I'm sure she needed to come back from the edge. So I have another very vivid memory of being about seven years old, and my mom flipped out, you know, and was having the remorse of an alcoholic parent, and we'd be better off without her, and she should just die. And this family friend uh, decided that I didn't need to be there for that. And she took me on a long walk. And I spent that entire walk trying to convince this woman that she needed to take me home. Because I was so afraid that if I wasn't there to say, Mom, I love you. And it's not always like this. And I would miss you if you were gone. And it's going to be okay. But I didn't know what I'd find. 
And of course, as it turned out, by the time we got home, she moved through it. I didn't really learn anything that day. You know, I thought we'd just, um, you know, I, I didn't know that it was just pure luck. You know, I still felt very responsible for making sure things were okay. Years later, when I got my sponsor in Alabama, she had me do um, some step one homework where she had me make a sort of stream of consciousness list of, like, a time writing, everything I could write down in, like, 20 minutes that I had done to try to control alcoholism. And then right next to that, she said, but did any of it work? And the last thing she asked me is, and how did it feel? And I'm a good student, and I can usually anticipate the answer of anything I'm asked to do. And I thought, oh, I know what this is going to be. This is going to be that long, long list of everything I did to try to um, stop alcoholism or control it, and how none of it worked. Well, instead, what I had to see for myself is far more powerful than the things that I thought had worked. I thought that my ability to enter into a room and gauge the emotional landscape of what kind of day is this? Do I need, can I be, sit down with my mom and visit my girlfriends? Or do I need to take my backpack to my room and do the dishes and not make eye contact and just hope that it doesn't implode? You know, I thought that my grades, um, my ability to have no needs, to make no demands, um, that that had kept things from my family from just um, exploding. And the way it made me feel is um, I was tired. I came into this program really tired. I had a nice compliment last night. Somebody told me that I didn't look old enough or tired enough to be a member of that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, what happened for me, and um, I'm so glad that uh, my first year in Alabama was as painful as it was, because I probably wouldn't have stuck around if it wasn't. What happened is my brother OD'd, and he uh, got admitted into uh, a treatment program at our local hospital. And I don't know if this treatment program still runs this way, but at the time, they refused to accept him. And thus, my mother agreed to do the full family program. They say, you know, addicts, alcoholics like him will not get well if the family doesn't change. And I was actually away at college, but luckily my mom and I were so enmeshed that I got a full, you know, verbatim phone call about every family session. She photocopied every handout they sent. And uh, very early in his treatment, they confronted her on her drinking and the way that we were raised. And she was offended. And she raised three children on her own and always kept a roof over her head. Always a different roof. <laughs> um, I'm born and raised in Santa Fe and I went from to, to 12 different schools between uh, first grade and graduation. Um, but, uh, so, you know, but like I said, you know, this summer got a little show 21 years clean and sober. For me, what that did is. At that point, 17 years of backlog, pain, anger, fear, uh, just like the lid blew off. And it was more than I could contain, and it was more than I knew how to handle. And luckily, there was an Al-Anon meeting uh, in my community. There was only one a week. And I went to that meeting initially just because... Somebody described it, maybe for last night, about that feeling of safety.
asked me what it was, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. But I went back to that meeting regularly just for that, just for the, you know, and it was enough. It was enough to get me to keep coming back. I'm an Alamon who um, truly believes that I didn't hit my real bottom until I'd actually been in the rooms of Alamon for four years. And what that looks like for me is I have pretty much, since I've been in Alamon, dated exclusively sober members and alcoholics. Uh, it has not, I don't recommend it. <laughs> Personal experience. What happened for me is I got into a relationship where we um, sort of set up by a mutual friend, did a very sort of quick and dirty version of what we thought our ideals and a partner were, didn't take any time to actually get to know each other and find out whether or not either of us could live according to our stated values, and we were just off and running. And what happened in that relationship is for the first time I got to observe the part of me that I have no power over. Uh, we talk a lot now in Alabama, we didn't used to, but it's become very popular now not to talk about our qualifiers. And I truly believe that it is my disease and my reactions and my lack of perspective that qualifies me for Alabama. And I heard somebody say this once, and I keep hoping it'll catch on because I thought it was so powerful, is somebody shared about the alcoholics in their life and they called them their motivators. And, you know, I do have still some practicing alcoholics in my life, and they're my motivators. You know, they definitely help um, me hit my knees and surrender to the God of understanding. But I started to realize in that relationship that I, uh, I just couldn't shut up. And I had grown up in a household uh, where there was some domestic violence. I grew up mostly with the threat of it. I truly believe that the only thing that had prevented um, somebody from putting my head through a wall, as promised, was my ability um, to shift the energy of you know that onslaught or to stay out of the way or you know whatever. So I have never been angry growing up because I'm the smallest and I'm the youngest person in my family, and I could just not out. There's no way I could out shout anyone in my family. But I started becoming that person in this relationship where, you know, my boyfriend would say, honey, I can't have this conversation. And he'd start to walk away because, you know, he was tired. He just put a full day in at work. Uh, and, you know, I think he really genuinely meant, like, just not now. And I would feel the ground open up beneath my feet. And something would take over me, and it would be like, no, we're going to do this now. <laughs> you know, we're going to do this now because if you turn your back on me, if you can't, and I always, I don't know, I used to say, like, I didn't even need him to meet with me. I don't know if that's true, but I felt that. I just needed him to hear me, you know, and I just thought that I would die if he didn't. So I proceeded to get louder. Um, I proceeded to that woman who would uh, pull on his arm, spin him around, you will talk to me now. And I actually heard an Al-Anon uh, member from California share once, um, Sue D. Her and her husband had a level of domestic violence in a relationship beyond anything I experienced. But the one thing Sue shared that made the hair on my arm stand up is she said, I was never hit where I wasn't first told to get out of my face. And she always took a step forward. And I was doing that. And I hadn't been hit, but I could feel the escalation. 
And it scared me enough that I um, got a sponsor. And the truth is, I actually had a sponsor first. Um, I actually first asked a man to sponsor me. And I did that because, unfortunately, the women in my home group, uh, they just thought I was adorable. And they treated me more as a mascot than a member. And this man didn't. He treated me like I genuinely earned my seat. And he was wonderful. He taught me a lot that I still use today. One of the things I warned him early on is I said, I'm a peace at any price person. You need to know that about me. I will always cave if there's any chance that it'll just keep things lying still. And he said, all right, I hear you, but I just need to ask you a couple questions. How peaceful is it? And what's the price you're paying? And, you know, the minute he asked the question, I knew that it never been peaceful. And the price I was paying was my self-respect. I've gotten really good at the years um, at learning how to take care of myself. And it has been, it continues to be at times a struggle. I still have just an unbearable pain tolerance. I've been praying the last few years for God to lower that because I still see that my reaction to um, insane, outrageous situations is I can take it. I'm not easily intimidated, and I will remain in situations long past the point of it being safe for me. Case in point, my last relationship, which was actually an improvement in many ways from any relationship I've had since, in that for the first time I genuinely believed I was with somebody who loved me and not some idea of me, who was really okay with all of me, um, no matter my insecurities or my vulnerabilities. I didn't just have to be brave and strong and funny. But this was also a man who proceeded to have a full-blown PTSD meltdown in the course of our relationship. And we had to sleep in separate rooms because he was fighting people at night who weren't there. And, you know, we had to be, we were broken up and having no contact for three months before I could feel the fear. You know, it took that long for me to realize that I had been in physical danger again. And that what I had done is exactly what I did as a small child, which is what is going on with you is so extreme and so clearly not okay and so much more intense than anything going on over here that we'll just put Kate over here for now and tend to you. And that's what I did as a child. That's what I did in this relationship. And it was um, humbling to be in that situation. I, uh, you know, it was interesting because he kept saying, you know, this is harming you. And um, I, whether, whether you see it or not, I can see that it's harming you and you deserve better. And I knew that I didn't want to be in a relationship as it was indefinitely, but I also saw that he was seeking help. And what more can you ask of anyone, right? But I did have a secret prayer. And my secret prayer was, God, if this situation is harming me in some way that I don't yet see, reveal it to me, because I still love this man, and I'm still going to be here. And what wound up happening is uh, I was at his place, sleeping in another room, and I was woken up at 3 a.m. with the sound of him screaming. And my first thought was, it's 3 a.m., 
cell will be open four more hours and I'll just write it out. And the next thought that came to me was, if you remain here listening to him scream for four more hours, you will have caused yourself harm. And I had to get up and leave. And it wasn't my intention to end the relationship, but it had that effect. So I am somebody who periodically hears the voice of God. Because uh, it comes to me in those still moments with a calmness and a certainty that I do not possess. And it's undeniable when it happens. One of the uh, early moments of grace that I experienced in Al-Anon, I don't even think I was in Al-Anon a full year, and I was back home house-sitting for somebody. I don't even remember what my mom came by. I don't remember what we thought about. But she defaulted to what she always defaulted to when she wasn't okay and when she was feeling panicky, which was nobody cares if I live or die and I should just take my life. And for the first time I looked at her and I knew without a doubt that she didn't mean it, that my mom had never sincerely sought death, that it was an expression of the depth of her frustration. And what came out of my mouth is it is cruel that you don't mean it. That was the first thing I said to her, you don't mean it. And it is cruel to say that to somebody who loves you as much as I do, and you've got to leave. And afterwards, my entire body trembled. This tends to happen whenever I practice new behavior. I think my very cells rebel, and they go, what did he just do? <laughs> the only way that we have survived to the ripe old age of 38 is by doing the other thing. <laughs> I, uh, I'm fast forward here a little bit. Uh, I don't have a very linear experience of telling my story. I need to talk a little bit about loss because that's what I didn't want to feel when I got here this weekend. And it's, of course, what I've been feeling for weeks. So, And actually, this was a much safer place to feel it than a lot. Uh, five years ago this June, uh, this June will be the fifth year anniversary of my brother's death. My eldest brother died uh, what I considered to be an alcohol-related death. He was an insulin-dependent diabetic who drank heavily. And his blood sugar shot up, and his heart stopped. And one of the things that I like to talk about is that what that the promise of Alamont for me has shifted in that it isn't about everybody getting sober today. And I'm jealous of the people who get that. Uh, I've heard those speakers, and I hate them. <laughs> They're like right up there with the people who, you know, finally surrendered their desire to ever be in a loving relationship again, and three months later are married. I have a hard time with those chairs, too. <laughs> so what Alamon taught me to do is it taught me to love my brother and be present for him without waiting for him to change. And one of the things that I believe that anything I do in Alamo prepares me for, and, and my sponsor made very specific requirements of me um, before she would agree to work with me. And she spelled it out, and she said, you will go to a minimum of two Alamo meetings a week. You will meet with me weekly. We will go through the steps. 
in order. You will have to do specific assignments for different steps. You will have a service commitment. You will call me and you will be wanting to call others. And you will do prayer and meditation. And uh, I feel like I do all of that just so that I can um, sometimes hear the truth and recognize the truth. So one of the things I, my brother said years ago, and he was from at the time, but when it's the truth today, I can hear it no matter how the message is delivered. And what he said is, it is so nice to just be able to live my life and not have to constantly justify and defend who I am. And the minute he said it, I realized that he was asking me for what I could do for him. So I never confronted my brother about his drinking. And to be fair, other family members had, so it wasn't like it went unsaid. You know, they took care of that for me. But there is uh, a gentleman in Alcoholics Anonymous who has uh, passed away now, Keith Lewis, who came to Santa Fe years ago, and he really spoke to me. And one of the things he talk, talked about was having a job description for every area of your life. And so that means not just as an employee, but as a daughter, and as a member of Alamon, and as a sponsor, and a sponsee, and as a friend, and as a sister. And, and he got very specific in his, and he was the eldest son, and he felt like there was a, a job description that came with being the eldest son. And I'm the baby sister. And when I looked up what's my job description as a baby sister, well, you know, that's to look up to my brothers. That's to be... Um, supportive and friendly, and, you know, they're my heroes, and they always have been, um, but to reflect that. And my brother lived in New Orleans for a couple of years, which was really wonderful because I was actually better at being in touch with him when he was long distance than I was when he lived in the same town. And I would call him at least once a month and say, you know, how are you doing? And I was thinking about you. I love you. And what was amazing is most of our conversations, frankly, were pretty superficial. They were about books, movies. Um, we were both working in the service industry at the time. And how hard it was to make a living, things like that. But every once in a while, the drop level. And some of those conversations, one was about our mother's alcoholism. And he shared that, uh, that for him, it had always been easy. That he couldn't, that no matter how spun out and angry and scared our mother was, that if she lost it, all he ever had to do was get her high. And it just went, wow. Now, he's nine years older than me, so that was manageable for him as a teenage boy. That was easy. That was something he felt he had some control over. And uh, this program has taught me to not always uh, correct people or challenge them, and to, people don't have to see it the way I do. So the whole time he was talking, I was praying, you know, please God help me say only what you'd have me say. And what I said to him was, I'm so glad that that's how it was for you. I have other memories. And he said, honey, I know you do. And it was enough. And I think it's very powerful in a family affected by alcoholism to not have to get everybody on board for our version of what it was like. Uh, another time we talked about my dad, who uh, wasn't around much when I grew up. But my brother's mom is a very angry stepfather. And I only ever seen my dad angry once, and he'd never been angry at me. And so when my brother was talking about his memories, I shared that. I shared that, you know, I know that that's true, that he was like that. 
but it's not been my experience with him. And he was able to say, honey, I know that's true, and I'm so glad for you because you get the dad that you deserve, and it's as it should be. So there was a lot of um, love and acceptance of my brother. I'm, a, I'm an attorney. They don't shout out a lot in my home group because I'm really not interested in giving legal advice. <laughs> but, uh, I also, but it's, it's so much that I would have given myself. Because you know I was raised to be a drug dealer and a con artist and a thief. And I was doing something else for a lot of years that I was good at, but I didn't love. And I prayed often to God, going, you know, this is okay, and it pays the bills. But I just don't see myself doing it for the next 20, 30 years. And, um, and, and guide me, you know, I don't know what to do next. And I remember where I was standing when I thought of law school. And the thought was, um, no. That's not me. Never going to happen. And this voice said, you have been saying no to this idea for 10 years, and you've never done any footwork. So I started doing the footwork, and I did it uh, fully intending that I went to visit the law school, and I didn't tell anyone I was going because I was pretty sure I was going to find out that, yep, I am not one of them. Good to know. Let's lay that idea to rest, and then God can direct me to what he really wants me to do. And I was actually sitting in the parking lot outside of my law school, and I um, called my brother. And uh, I just read myself out. I said, you know, I am sitting here terrified, and all I'm doing is going to take a tour. And he said, honey, it's the first step of what might be a radical life change. Of course you're terrified. And my brother was really proud of me. He died right before my last year of law school, and I struggled. Because his death was so sudden and unexpected, I spent a good part of that year going, what's the point? Why do I try so hard at anything? I think it would be taken like that. But my brother, our last conversation as I was writing myself out to him about what a complete overachieving perfectionist freak I can be, that I said, you know, if I have a chance, I'll go without food or sleep because of that desperate desire to prove one more time that I'm good enough. And he said, honey, I'm so proud of you, and I'm jealous. And I'm jealous because there are things that I want in my life um, that I want, that I'm not willing to work that hard for. And I see you doing it. And I'm so grateful that this program empowered me to love him long before he was sober, because he had no interest in sobriety. He's one of those um, drinkers who used to say things like, you know, I don't believe in Clinton. Um, and, uh, 
and I talked about that last year of law school and how I was just going through the motions and how part of me just felt like giving up on everything. And, you know, my brother was also in a graduate program, and he'd suffered the exact same thing. And we were able to share that, and we were able to talk about him and the things that we miss about him and and not put him on a pedestal, you know, talk about how he could, you know, get really agitated about the most random things that didn't even affect his life and how intense he could be and... You know, my brother's living in Northern California, and both my brothers were Raiders fans, and he was talking about how much he regretted that Tim never got to a Raiders game, and it was really sweet, and it's been a process, uh, and you know, I had that experience of healing with Tim, and I'm um, looking forward to that same miracle of my other brother. It has been a process. Um, this is the brother who's been um, sober at times. So I had less patience with him, ironically, because I feel like he knows what the answer is and just, you know, pick it up already. Uh, and, you know, I'm talking about, you know, getting that direct uh, guidance. One of the things that happened uh, a few years ago is I was obsessing about a boyfriend that I broke up with. Um, I love obsession. It's a great way to stay in a relationship that's ended. Uh, <laughs> and it was New Year's Day, and holidays for me are very seductive, you know, because my disease starts going like, well, you can call just a wish for Merry Christmas. Like, that's just neighborly. You know, so you can just call on New Year's Day, let him know that you're thinking about him, you hope that he's well, and I have um, volunteered when my nieces and nephews were young um, to have them over New Year's Eve because I'm not a drinker and the rest of the family is, and so it puts my mind at ease, and it's a great way to celebrate. So I had my niece um, that morning, and, you know, I went to the bathroom to pray, and I was like, please, God, help me be present. She's still here. I'd like to enjoy her company. And um, after I said that prayer, you know, my brother drove up, and I, I'm always surprised when dad tries to decides to work through the trigger. So I went, really? This will be interesting. Wasn't expecting him. And he came in, and he came in really jazzed up about some classes he was taking, and he was sharing about his classes, and a couple of the themes that he was learning about just resonated so loudly. And one of the things he talked about is that he was talking about um, – different cultures, and that one of the things he was learning in his class is that we have a tendency to treat other cultures as though they're a failed version of our own. And the minute he said it, I realized that my entire life I have treated my brother as though his life was a failed version of my own. And I was always looking at him and going, mm, not quite. You know, I want to try a little bit harder. So I needed to stop doing that. The other thing he said is he was um, learning counseling, and he was talking about working with a family where they had one um, overachieving, athletic, you know, kind of star student, and then they had this daughter who was really struggling. And, of course, they were comparing. Um, the advice that my brother gave this family is he said, you've got to stop comparing this girl to her brother. She is a unique expression of the divine. And the minute he said that, I realized how often I failed to see my brother as a unique expression of the divine. Perfect, just as he is. Now, there is some behavior that I choose not to be around. 
but that's on me. Uh, I never announce my boundaries to people. I find that it's um, much more effective to act on them. So um, if you're screaming and I don't want to be screamed at, I'm very good now at um, getting off the phone. Uh, actually, it startled me the last time I had to hang up on somebody and didn't even think about it. Their voice shut off and the phone closed. And I just sort of looked at it and went, well, that's different. Because <laughs> I was a great one for saying, you know, I don't want to have this conversation. I don't like where it's going and waiting for the other person to agree. And I heard a lot of things that it's hard to unhear by saying on the phone. I'm not really good at first line of an angry email. I delete it. I don't need to read the whole thing. I don't need to save it to read to my sponsor. I generally know where it's going. Um, I do visit my brother. I stay in a hotel, and I have a rent a car. Um, I haven't always been able to afford that, but uh, I think what's my serenity worth? I was sponsoring a situation now where I've had to encourage her to go. You know, it's not, it's not an answer for every night, but some nights you just got to get a hotel. You know, because I used to stand my ground in that relationship where I hit my trail on bottom thinking, hell with you, I pay half the bills, I'll be damned if I'm going to leave. And what I realized is sometimes somebody just had to leave. And I'll leave the room if that works, and if it doesn't work, I'll leave the house. I've had the phone in my hand, prepared to call 911 on a family member. Um, and those are not things that I came to easily. But what I realized is that the children in my life, I believe, have a divine right to safety and respect. You know, and I will intercede on their behalf. And I've been very slow to realize that I have that same right. Uh, for a long time, I was carrying around a photograph of myself as a small child because I think I'm a badass. And that I don't need protection. The one advantage of being truly afraid of only one person is I'm actually not afraid of anybody else. So I'm the bouncer for my local homeroom. <laughs> um, we meet in the local AA club, and sometimes people stumble in a little bit wet or mentally ill, and I will escort those people out. But I'm trying to learn um, to protect that child, you know, that, um, that didn't have anyone looking out for her. And I know I'm running out of time, but I've got to tell you something really um, quick here. Some people in this room know that I made a decision a few years ago that one of my heart's desires is to be a mother. And uh, I prayed for it a long time, going, you know, God, what do I do because I'm single? And I decided to pursue it even as a single woman. And uh, a year ago, I got pregnant, and I had a miscarriage. And so I'm grieving that, too, because I'm currently not trying. And what not trying has done is it's created a space where, you know, as blessed as I am today, and I truly have an amazing life, that does not prevent me from feeling self-pity. And I have been really struggling with God and going, I just don't understand why this hasn't happened for me, why I don't get this, why other people appear to. And... Uh, couple of things, you know, my sponsor just met on Thursday, and she said, honey, you just need to tell God. He knows. But you got to sit with God, and you got to say, you know, I genuinely want this. I am genuinely afraid that if this doesn't become part of my life, that my life will be um, incomplete. I don't know if I can take it. And she goes, I just lay that before him. And then she reminded me of something I always hate hearing, which is that you do the first step. 
and you rent it. And that means your life is none of your business. And I struggle with that. Not with how to be okay with not getting my heart's desire when I have surrendered so completely to the God of my understanding. And my God has a, my God has a lot of money to do that. My sponsor. Thank you so much for an amazing weekend. I love you all.